0: So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we will be in verses 1 to 11. Mark 14, verses 1 to 11. We are always assessing the value of things and trying to figure out If it is worth the cost. If you're not tracking with me, let me give you a few examples so you can see what I'm saying. And so, if you want to buy some kicks or some sneakers or tennis shoes, you assess whether or not that pair of shoes is worth you paying that price. You see, before taking another job, you assess whether or not it's worth it. You begin to evaluate. You see, there may be benefits, as in a higher income, but there may be a cost, as in less time with family or friends. As you think about whether or not you want to quit your job, you're making an evaluation. You see, the benefit may be more time with family and friends, but the cost may be a tighter budget. You see, Team Chapman, in this season, we've been doing a lot of evaluating lately as we go and look at house after house, trying to assess whether or not we're going to invest there and put down an offer. You see, we're always assessing the worth of something. Well, in this morning's passage, we will see people make an assessment Not of something, but of someone, Jesus Christ. Everyone in the passage is making an assessment of Jesus' worth. That's what we would see in a passage. So Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11. Please stand for the reading of God's word. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. Not during the festival, they said, so that there won't be a riot among the people. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured it on his head. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why? Has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You always have the poor with you, and you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body in advance for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. You may be seated. And so our big idea for this passage is this. Sacrificial service for Jesus testifies to the worthiness of Jesus. Sacrificial service for Jesus testifies to the worthiness of Jesus. We have two points or two scenes that we will see. First, we will see a sinful scheme and then a sacrificial service. First, a sinful scheme and then a sacrificial service. So, our first point a sinful scheme. So, in the beginning of Mark chapter 14, we have entered into the introduction of Jesus' passion, which is the description of his arrest, his suffering, and his death. Then, afterwards, he would rise from the grave. In our passage, we see that the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were at hand. So, Jews from all over would travel to Jerusalem as they commemorate their deliverance from Egypt, and how God established them as a nation. You see, the Passover, it refers to the final plague in Egypt, where God went through Egypt and killed the firstborn as an act of judgment. And the only way one's firstborn would be spared was if they sacrificed an unblemished lamb or goat and painted the blood on the doorposts. You see, their house would be passed over. And the day after celebrating the Passover would be the commencement of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, where Israel celebrated leaving Egypt in haste. You see, they didn't have time for the dough to rise in the bread. They had to get out. And this celebration would last an entire week. And as this, these festivals were approaching, the Sanhedrin were convening and planting or planning out Jesus' arrest And his death. You see, their beef with Jesus has brewed for some time. It started back in chapter two. After they heard Jesus pronounce that a person's sins were forgiven, they considered or perceived that he was blaspheming. Later on, they would say that Jesus was a worker of Satan. By the time we get to chapter 11, after Jesus cleanses the temple and rebukes them, they begin to plot and plan and scheme Jesus' arrest and death. You see, here there was no trial or jury, yet they have already rendered a verdict that Jesus needs to die, that he is condemned. They want to kill the Son of God. You see, they've rejected him and considered him a phony. You see, to them, they believed that he shouldn't be believed in, but that he should be killed. In their minds, he wasn't worthy of worship, but he was worthy of crucifixion. And so they began planning Jesus' death. But did you see in verse 1? They were looking for a cunning way to arrest Jesus and kill him. You see, they had to be deceptive about this. They try to fly under the radar with their plans. And though they try to be cunning about it, Jesus knew all about it. Because nothing gets past Jesus. You see, three times he has already predicted his death and his resurrection. You see, Jesus knew their plans before they did and better than they did is because Jesus was in total control because Jesus is God. You see, the death of Jesus under the influence of the Sanhedrin was all according to God's sovereign plan. They would hang him on the cross, and that would be the very means by which Jesus brings about redemption. You see, they considered Jesus a curse they would hang him on the cross, and it was on that very cross that he bore the curse of sin in our place. Look at verse 2. They have no plans, and yet they say, not during the festival, so that there won't be a riot among them, among the people. You see, they initially agreed not to do it during the festival to prevent an uproar. As we've seen in chapters 11 and 12, the Sanhedrin, they were afraid of the crowd. And so to arrest and kill Jesus during the festival would cause a riot. It would be a nightmare for them, for they would be rejected by the crowd. And also it would cause an uproar, which would cause Rome to come down and afflict terror upon the people. You see, they want to take Jesus down, but they ain't trying to go down with him. So they were scheming to kill Jesus. They aim for his condemnation as if he was a sinner. They've rejected him. You see, he is the sinless son of God, and yet they don't believe. They believe him to be a criminal. They want to put to death the author of life because they hate him and their hearts were hard towards him. You see, they assessed Jesus' worth, and they said that he was worthy of wrath. And it's because their hearts were hard. You see, Jesus is God and he is worthy of worship, yet hard hearts will only reject him and devalue him. They never see him as worthy of worship, but worthy of contempt. A hard heart would not perceive Jesus as a friend, but an enemy, a threat, a killjoy. You see, a hard heart would much rather end Jesus Then exalt him. You see, their assessment was way off. Jesus was not a criminal, but he is the Christ, the Son of God. You see, here we see that there are real ramifications for viewing Jesus wrongly. We see it here in the text, we also see it in our own lives. You see, by God's grace, we have received Christ. We believe in him. He is our Lord and Savior. And yet, because we are in this body of flesh and we are weak, there are times when we are not viewing Jesus rightly. You see, when we don't see Jesus as of supreme worth, as of worthy of all glory and honor and praise, it is those very moments where we would see him as a hindrance to our joy than the source of it. It's in those moments where we want to rid ourselves of Jesus instead of have our lives revolve around him. You see, it's in those moments where we would see his commands as burdensome and not beneficial. It's those moments when sin looks the most enticing, You see, beloved, if we're not constantly viewing Jesus correctly by faith, we will chart out plans to sin against him instead of plans to obey him by his grace. You see, beloved, it is imperative to maintain a proper view of the Lord Jesus Christ, to see him as he is, the king in all his beauty, as worthy of worship. And if we're going to do that, then we must daily be in the word, in prayer, and in each other's lives, reminding one another of the worthiness of Christ. We need to regularly behold his glory with an unveiled face. For it is then and only then will we see him as beautiful and precious and want to do his will and not sin against him. You see the Sanhedrin? Their own sin blinded them from the beauty and the magnificence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their wrong view of him led to their rejection of him and they concluded that he's not worthy of worship but worthy of wrath. And so they begin to scheme, plotting the death of the Son of God, striving to kill the Holy One. Plans have been put in place And we'll see later how those plans begin to form. But what we've seen first is a sinful scheme. And now let's look at a sacrificial service. Look at verse 3. While he was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, he was reclining at the table. And a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume of pure nard. So here Jesus, he was back in Bethany. He's hosted by Simon, who has been cleansed of leprosy. Now, we don't know when he was cleansed, but we know that he was healed because he's no longer an outcast from society. Instead, he's a host for a meal. And we see that a woman came in. John chapter 12 will make known that this woman was Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. She brought An alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. Now, this perfume was likely passed down from family. The text says that it was expensive. It's worth a year's salary. And it says that it is of pure nard, which was an oil from India. See, it's like a very expensive, beautifully smelling essential oil. You see this perfume? It was hers. And she had the freedom to do whatever she wanted to do with it. But y'all, look what she does. It says that she broke it and poured it on his head. You see, this is total abandonment of her perfume for Jesus. She withheld none of it, but sacrificed it all by pouring it on Jesus' head. This was a precious possession from its worth to its familial ties, and yet Mary believed that Jesus was worth sacrificing it for because she loved him and was devoted to him. You see, when you love someone, you'd be willing to make sacrifices for them, even if it's costly. Y'all, I remember when I was dating my wife and I wanted to propose to her, and so I start saving up all the money I could Like, man, I'm putting all kinds of money into my my savings account. I'm cutting back on everything. I'm not going out as much. I'm not eating out as much. Chick-fil-A was replaced by (laughs) PB&J. You see, I had this goal in mind. I was like, man, I want to marry this woman. And so I will make all the sacrifices that I could to bring about that ends. I believe that I was about to say Jesus. Jesus is certainly worth it. But I believe that my wife was worth it. And she was. You see, we make sacrifices for ones who we believe to be worth it, to be worthy of it. And here we see Mary doing that very thing for the Lord Jesus. You see, she displayed her love and devotion by sacrificing this expensive perfume for Jesus. And what's amazing about this is that she did it voluntarily. If you look at the passage, we don't see anyone commanding her to do it. She did it of her own volition. She sacrificed her prized possession for one who is even more precious. You see, if the perfume was valuable, how much more than Jesus? She evaluated and concluded that Jesus was worth it. You see, I remember hearing a story of a brother who signed as a free agent to play for the Baltimore Ravens in the preseason. And after the preseason, he stopped playing football and pursued pastoral ministry and never looked back. You see, why would this brother give up a good thing, which is playing professional football for pastoral ministry? It's because Jesus was Worth it. He believed Jesus to be worth it. Jesus to be worthy of forsaking this and entering into the ministry and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ for all of his days. Give up a good thing and probably a lifelong dream to preach the Savior who is worthy. Jesus is worth it. You see, no one is greater than him and none can compare to him. He is worthy of any and all sacrifices that we could make for him. Beloved, do you regard Jesus as of supreme worth to where you withhold nothing from him? Would you be willing to give up for Jesus what you hold as most precious, whether it's comfort or relationship? Or even a coveted promotion that would lead you elsewhere in a place where there is no faithful gospel preaching church? Would you conclude that Jesus was worth forsaking that because you want him? Is Jesus precious to you? should be something worth talking with with one another and encouraging one another. Because Christ is worthy. He is the greatest treasure. He loved us and gave himself up for us. And in response to his love and grace, we are to love him supremely and give up ourselves for him. You see, as this woman offers her sacrifice, not everybody is glad about it. Look at verses 4 and 5. But some were expressing indignation to one another. Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they began to scold her. You see, the disciples, they saw it and they were angry at her. She didn't do with it what they thought should have been done. So they criticized her for what she did. You see, her actions were different than expected. But different doesn't mean wrong or sinful. Beloved, how often do we interpret somebody's different actions? Reword that. How often do we interpret different as wrong in areas where there is freedom? You see, just because we think something could have been done differently doesn't mean that a person was wrong for doing it the way that they did it. If there was, yeah, if people were to serve, evangelize, or faithfully preach the gospel differently than you, How would you respond? Would you commend or would you criticize? You see, it's easy to say what should have been done or what we would have done if we were given that opportunity. We do this all the time. We say, man, if that was me, dot, dot, dot. That man, if I was in that position, I would have did this. To be honest, we actually never really know what would have we done. (laughs) And if the person didn't do anything wrong or sinful, we don't need to condemn them or scold them. It is unloving. You see, the disciples, their concern in this moment was for the poor, and that is commendable. But their criticism and rebuke of her wasn't. You see, they said that she squandered her perfume, but it was for Jesus. For Jesus. So was it actually wasted? Do we really waste resources when we use them to serve the Lord Jesus? You see, their criticism revealed their view of Jesus at that moment. That he's not worth all of that. That that's too much for him. And beloved, how often can we have similar remarks when a brother or sister Make a sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, in the 19th century, the people of New Hebrides Islands were known for being cannibals. And the missionary, John G. Patton and his wife, they committed to taking the gospel to this island for which they received a ton of criticism from Christians. One elder told him that you will be eaten by cannibals. Y'all, how encouraging was that? This brother want to take the gospel to a people who haven't heard, and you telling him that, man, you're going to be eaten by cannibals. To which Patton gave a bold response. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They're to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can live and die serving the Lord, It will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. What a strong response. Put that man in his place in love and reminded him that Jesus is worth it. But y'all, how likely are we to respond like Mr. Dixon with criticism when someone makes a sacrifice for the Lord Jesus? You see, if a brother quits his successful career to pursue pastoral ministry, would you criticize or... Or commend if a sister chose to use her spring break to go overseas and serve our ministry partners instead of going to the beach would you encourage her or would you criticize her in your heart you see if we were to criticize her criticize them what are we saying about their sacrifice and more importantly what are we implying about Jesus That he's not worthy of that sacrifice. That though he sacrificed his life for us, we don't think you should sacrifice that for him. How sad. You see, in those moments, our view of Jesus is way off. You see, in the disciples' rebuke, they were focused on the what and not on the for who. You see, they were fixated upon the expensive perfume and not who the sacrifice was for. And how often do we focus on the what instead of the for who? You see, if we're obsessed over the what is being sacrificed, we may say that's too much. But when we're fixated on for who it is sacrificed for, the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that he alone is worthy We will give up our possessions. We will give up our very own lives in response to his gospel. Because Jesus is the supreme one. He is the glorious one. He is worthy. He's the creator, sustainer of the universe. And he is our redeemer. Beloved, he is worthy. The Father exalted him. The angels praise him. The saints will worship him. All will bow their knees before him and confess that he is Lord. We will forever sing that he is worthy. And so may our gaze be upon the one who is worthy. May we live for him alone. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, will say it this way. For the love of Christ compels us. For we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died so that we who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. You see, if we live for him, we withhold nothing from him. Because he is worthy of it all. It is because we believe that he is worthy that our response to brothers and sisters' sacrifices shouldn't be criticism but commendation. It's because we know that he is worthy that we are to champion and celebrate brothers and sisters' good works. And that we are to consider how we can stir up brothers and sisters to love and good works how we can encourage sacrificial service for the Lord Jesus Christ because he is worthy, for he is. So, beloved, may we be a people who don't criticize good works or sacrificial service, but who celebrate them and praise God for them. May we encourage fellow brothers and sisters. May we see that these things please the Lord when they're done to God's glory in faith. For they are evidence of the Spirit's work in the lives of our fellow brothers and sisters. And they testify to one's love and devotion for the Lord Jesus Christ. You see here, the disciples, they weren't feeling her sacrificial service, but Jesus wasn't feeling their rebuke. Look at verse 6. Jesus replied, leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She has done a noble thing for me. You see, Jesus didn't passively watch them berate her. He stepped in, defended her, and corrected their outlook. You see, they chided her, but he commended her before them. Jesus says that she has done a noble thing. Her deed was beautiful before the Savior. You see, Jesus recognized that her service was done in faith and was a display of her love and devotion to him. You see, Jesus commends service done in faith, whether big or small, whether it be the giving of water in his name or the pouring of perfume for his glory. It pleases him. You see, we don't have to do big things for the Lord in order to please him. Jesus commends good works and sacrificial service done in faith because they are fruits of faith and done for his glory. So may we be faithful. May we serve and do so sacrificially. And if the Lord commends sacrificial service for him, then we should celebrate it. Look at verse 7. You always have the poor with you, and you can do whatever, you can do what is good for them whenever you want. But you do not always have me. Y'all, is Jesus being insensitive? Is he? Is he being careless regarding the poor in this very moment? Not at all. You see, Jesus loves and cares for the poor. He has served them and preached the gospel to them. And if you were to read the entire Bible, both Old and New Testament, you will walk away knowing that God loves and cares for the poor and the marginalized. You see, Jesus ain't being careless in regarding the poor. Instead, his comments, they allude to Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11, where God commands Israel to willingly lend to and serve the poor in the promised land. You see, there were limitless opportunities to serve the poor then as it has always been. You see, the contrast wasn't between Jesus and the poor. It was between the opportunities they had to serve Jesus in comparison to the opportunities they have to serve the poor. Because the poor will always be among them, there wasn't a shortage of opportunities to serve and do good to them. However, Jesus was about to die and resurrect, and then he will ascend. So the window of opportunity to serve Jesus was closing swiftly. He says that you can do good to them whenever you want, and the church should do good to our neighbors who are poor. We are to do this out of a love for God and for our neighbors, and Scripture mandates it. James chapter 1, verse 27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You see when we see a poor brother or sister in need we are to serve them. Do good to them in tangible ways. Jesus got at this in Matthew chapter 25 verse 35 when he says for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And then he says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see, doing good to the poor in faith are works that show show fruit of faith. And these things please the Lord. You see, there are countless opportunities to serve our neighbors who are poor. Beloved, so the question for us is do we aim to do good to our neighbors who are poor? Do we even want to? Is it on our radars? There are myriads of ways that we can serve. We can serve by supplying food, water, and shelter. We can encourage and pray for and support ministries that are doing good work among the poor. And we should be sharing the gospel with them as we serve in tangible ways. Look at verse 8. Jesus says that she has done what she could, she has anointed my body in advance for burial. You see, Jesus interpreted this service as an anointment or burial. And this is important in at least two ways. One, Jesus' comment reveals that his suffering and death was imminent. He has repeatedly repeatedly predicted his death, and now he declares that it's really soon. And secondly, though innocent, Jesus knew that he was about to suffer as a guilty criminal, as a transgressor so he wouldn't be anointed. You see, he'd suffer and die as a criminal, and through it he would make atonement for sin. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12 says it this way, that he was counted among the rebels, yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. Mark chapter 10, verse 45 describes his death in this way, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus, he died, he was buried, but he didn't remain dead. He rose from the grave, victoriously defeating Satan, sin, and death. And if you look at verse 9, it declares the effectiveness of Jesus' death, and it implies his resurrection. For Jesus says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see, verse 9 implies that Jesus' death, that he will be buried, that he would raise from the grave. And that the gospel, because the gospel deals with Jesus' death and resurrection, and it declares what Christ has accomplished. You see, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 5, reveals the essential components of the gospel. And it says this, For I passed on to you, as most important, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, we declare these things as we preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, here he looked past his death and declared that his finished work will be proclaimed in all the world. For this is good news. And this message should be believed, and belief in it results in salvation. Y'all, did you catch how far the gospel should go? He says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, the gospel should be proclaimed all over the globe. You see, the gospel, it isn't this stationary message tied to one city or region or country or continent, that everyone must come and hear. Now, the gospel is a missionary gospel in that it is to go out and be spread all over the world. Romans chapter 10 verse 15 says it this way, that how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. You see, the good news is to be brought And the question is, who should bring it? Christians. You see, we take the gospel all over the world, which results in churches being planted and people being sent out to preach the gospel. You see, we should be about gospel advancement. Beloved, a question for us is this. Is our scope for gospel advancement aligned with Jesus's? Because his is the whole world. And ours shouldn't be anything short of that. You see, the advancement of the gospel should be what we be concerned about as followers of Jesus. Is gospel advancement all over the world a thing that you pray for regularly? Do you labor towards it? Preaching the gospel to family, neighbors, and co-workers. Parents, are you faithfully sharing the gospel with your children? Praying and calling them to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Members, are our homes habitats for gospel ministry? Where we proclaim the gospel to our neighbors and family members who we have in our homes. Beloved, what an opportunity that we have before us that we should steward faithfully for God's glory. And as a church, we should pray that God would raise up and send out pastors and missionaries because we want the gospel to advance to the ends of the earth. You see, Jesus expected for the gospel to go forth to the ends of the earth. And that should be the very work that we are concerned about. And so if you're not a Christian, I am glad that you're here. And friends, the gospel is about Jesus' death and resurrection. It is good news, and it is good news for you. And the reason it's good news for you is because you have sinned against a holy and righteous and just God. You have misplaced worship, not giving God the worship that he is worthy of, but worshiping creation and extolling creation. We have sinned against God in our words, motives, and deeds. And God is holy, who will by no means acquit the guilty. And in his love, God sent his son to come and bear our sins on the cross, suffering the wrath that we rightfully deserved, suffered for our misplaced worship, that we may be forgiven and that we may have a relationship with him through faith in Jesus. Christ died and he resurrected from the grave and he forgives all who turn from their sin and trust in him. He saves by his grace. And so I would implore you this very day, turn from your rebellion and trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. verse 9, Jesus says that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So this doesn't mean that as we preach the gospel, we are to explicitly share that Mary washed Jesus' feet. But what Jesus is getting at is that the anointing of Jesus' body pointed to an essential component of the gospel, It pointed to Jesus' death and his burial. And so her deed will be remembered in that regard as it anticipated Jesus' substitutionary death for our sins and his burial. And her deed will be remembered because it has been recorded in Scripture. All four Gospels have recorded this account. You see, Jesus, he commended her sacrificial service, which was done out of a love for him. And y'all, to be honest, I wish that this was where the passage concluded, but it doesn't. You see, where she believed Jesus was worth sacrificing for, one of Jesus' companions evaluated Jesus and concluded that he was worth sacrificing. Look at verses 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard this, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he started looking for a good opportunity to betray him. Judas, an apostle of Jesus Christ, one whom he chose back in Mark chapter 3, that Judas, along with the others, would be with him. Judas has heard Jesus' teachings. He has witnessed Jesus' mighty acts. He has agreed with Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. Judas even performed mighty deeds in Jesus' name. And look what he does. Jesus has done nothing but good to Judas, and yet Judas betrayed Jesus. Did you see that this was premeditated? He went to the scribes, to the chief priests, and voluntarily offered his service in handing over the Son of God. You see, Judas, he devalued Jesus. He saw Jesus as worthy, not of his life and worship, but of 30 pieces of silver. You see, his heart towards Jesus was revealed by his actions regarding Jesus. Such atrocious act and never repenting of it showed that Judas never believed in Jesus. As I said last week, a believing faith is an enduring faith. And also a believing faith is a repenting faith. You see, when we sin against God, we are to confess and turn away from our sins. And Judas never did that. So the plot, the plan has been put in place. Through Judas' betrayal, Jesus would be handed over and condemned to die. The betrayal of Jesus was an atrocious act of treachery that God would providentially ordain to bring about the greatest good in human history, the salvation of sinners. You see, Jesus was handed over and humiliated, which resulted in his exaltation and our salvation. Praise be to God. You see, what's astounding is that everyone in this passage gave an evaluation regarding Jesus' worth. The Sanhedrin said that he's worth killing. Judas said that he's worth sacrificing. And the woman said that that Jesus was worth sacrificing for, even her most prized possession. You see, where Judas and the Sanhedrin were blinded to the worthiness of Jesus, Mary knew his worthiness and gave up everything for him because he is worthy. Beloved, Jesus is worthy, not of sacrificing, but of sacrificing for. He is worthy of our adoration, of our worship, of our obedience, of our very own lives because he is the king who brings his kingdom. He is the Savior who died for our sins and resurrected from the grave. He is the one who loved us and gave himself up for us that we may be reconciled to God. Beloved, the king is worthy. May we worship him for all of our days. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we praise you for your grace that in your love you would send your Son, our Redeemer, our Savior, and according to your plan, he will be handed over, sacrificed in our place, that we may be redeemed. Father, we praise you that you have opened our eyes to know that the King is worthy, that he is glorious, that he is holy and righteous, that he is the Son of God. And Father, may for all of our days we worship this glorious King. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.